Several weeks ago, we began a series of sermons going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I've encouraged you to take time each week to sit down, get a cup of tea, cup of coffee, turn off all your technology, and just read straight through the letter. 17 minutes. That's what it takes the average reader. You can do this. You read stuff that takes 17 minutes all along. A lot of us have been kind of enculturated in a way of approaching the Bible where we read little snippets. Even the way our Bibles are formatted encourage us to do that by breaking it down into verses and chapters. So I would encourage you each week while we're going through Ephesians to find time to do this, to get still and quiet and just have a run right through the book. I hope you've done it this week, past week. And I hope you'll continue to do it in the weeks ahead. Now, this morning, we've come to to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you have a Bible, uh, uh, please find it. If you need to use your table of contents, that is okay. It's to the right, near the maps. Okay. Now, this is a letter. Paul is the author of the letter. He's sitting in prison, and he's writing this letter to young churches in and around Ephesus. Ephesus was the primary city of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the western border of it. So Paul writes this letter, and in verses 15 through 23 of the first chapter, he's bringing the introduction of the letter to a conclusion. In verse 1 of, of, at the very beginning, he identifies himself the author. In verse 2, he greets the recipients. In verses 3 through 14, he pours out praise to God. We looked at that last week. And then in verses 15 to 23, what he's doing is he's telling these young churches how he prays for them. What are the things he talks to God about when he prays for them? Notice verse 15. I really like the translation Michelle used. It's a very fresh modern translation called the Kingdom New Testament. I I commend it to you. Because I heard that you are loyal and faithful to Jesus the Master, And that you show love to all God's holy people. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Okay. So what he's saying here is that God has already begun to work powerfully in these young churches. They have faith in Jesus and they practice love toward other Christians. And so when Paul prays for them... He gives thanks for that. He thanks God for these churches in Asia Minor that have faith in the Lord and that practice love. And this comes out of him right off the bat as thanksgiving. So it's interesting to watch Paul at prayer. And the first thing we notice is that what comes out of him is worship. He adores the Lord God. And the next thing that comes out of him is gratitude. This is, this is good modeling of really mature 
praying. And then in verse 17, he asked, The God of King Jesus, our Lord, the Father of glory, to give to the young churches in and around Ephesus, notice this, the gift of being wise. Now, he's using wise in a way that we don't use it today. We've turned wise into our own kind of cultural thing. But he's praying this in a very specific way. And he tells you what he means by being wise. There's a comma. I pray that God would give you the gift of being wise. Comma. What I mean by that is seeing things people don't normally see to have the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light. So on the one hand, the churches in and around Ephesus have already been radically affected by the gospel. But on the other hand, they need to grow up. They need to become more mature. And in particular, he says in verse 17, what they need is a fresh gift of wisdom. Of coming to see things that it's it's not natural to see. Of coming to see things that the people they live around don't see. And this happens through knowing Jesus and having what Paul calls the eyes of your inmost self being opened to God's light. And when that happens, three things will get much clearer. Genuine Christian hope, number one. Number two, the massive power available to Christians. And number three, the astonishingly comprehensive mission of the church. I don't always preach like this, three points. This is my shout out to my past. Okay, let's dive in. First of all, notice what Paul prays in verse 18. He prays that they will know exactly what the hope is that God that goes with God's call. You will know the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in his holy people. So Paul asked God to give these young churches not just some outward knowledge, but a knowledge that goes deep, so deep, it changes the way they look at hope. Hope is a fairly ubiquitous thing. But Christian hope is particular. So what is this hope that Paul is praying for them to have? What is this hope to which Christians have been called to? Uh, uh, Some of you, if you've grown up in the church, you're accustomed to thinking that Christians are called to be holy. But Paul also says here, we're called to a particular type of hope. And it takes as much wisdom to have this kind of hope as it takes to have Christian holiness. And it takes as much work to have this kind of hope as it does to have Christian holiness. And it's as different from the hope of the world as holiness is 
from the world's ideas. So Paul is asking them to, for them to have something in particular. Far too often, Christians, Christians here in the West, over the last several centuries, we have assumed that hope, the object of our hope, is to get to heaven. And some really bad books... And some really great books like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress have been written in which the happy ending is the hero reaching the end of this worldly life and going off to life in heaven. But that's not the biblical view of hope. That's not our hope. Go back to verse 10. God's plan is to, look what it says, unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things in earth. Our hope concerns the whole cosmos. Everything, all things in heaven and all things on earth being united in Jesus Christ. This is what our Old Testament reading was about that David read to us in Isaiah chapter 11. And remember especially, not, all, not only all of that beautiful evocative imagery of lions and lambs laying down together. And I was sitting by Shay whose burning question in life is, Dad, can I take my shoes off now? And I was sitting there thinking, I almost leaned over her and said, you won't have to wear shoes anywhere. <laughs> Snakes won't be a problem. Thorns won't be a problem. Dad won't stop you. But remember especially verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 11. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. That's our hope. Not for some disembodied kumbaya Casper convention in the sky. Our hope is is for this earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's the promise. The creation as a whole set free. After all, God is the creator. He has no interest in leaving earth to rot and making do for all of eternity with only half Of his original creation. God intends to flood. The whole cosmos. Heaven and earth together. With his presence. And his grace. And when that happens. The new world. Will be born. In which Jesus Christ himself. Will be the central figure. He'll play. On the new cycle endless loop. That's our inheritance. Our inheritance as Christians, what we're going to get one day, is that. The whole earth flooded with the knowledge of the glory of God like water covers the sea. For so many Christians here in the West, the name of the game for the last couple of centuries has been that when this life is over, we'll go to heaven. But that's just a parody 
of the grand story the Bible tells. Now, to be sure, there is much about this earth at this moment which is sad and dark and gloomy and evil. And we definitely want to be rid of all of that. And we want to be with God. But the whole point of the biblical revelation is that the God who made heaven and earth together in the first place is going to renew them so that the end of the whole story will not be heaven by itself, but heaven and earth reunited, fully integrated. That this earth will be heavenly and heaven will be earthly. That's the Christian hope. That this earth will, that on this earth, there will not be a single square inch of it that is not filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Not family life, not education, not the justice system. All of that will still be here, but it'll be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. This is a really good prayer to pray for our church, that we can really have that as our dominant hope. That that hope will be what pulls us forward, what gets us out of bed every morning, which gives us a way of understanding our vocations. In the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus opens up creation. God says in the resurrection, yes, this is my world. I am making it over anew, starting with the physical body of Jesus Christ. Okay, so when Paul is praying for the churches in Ephesus, and he asks God to give them a fresh gift of wisdom so that they can see something they don't normally see, what he's praying for is that they will see where this thing is going. Not just in their head, but deep in their imagination. That this will be the framework of the way they think about life. How about you? Do you see it? Does this, does, is, does this make you into who you are? Is this dominating you? Or do you need a fresh gift of wisdom? To, so that you can really understand this. And really get it. Is, that, is this your hope? Do you need to be delivered from the thin parody of Christian hope that has dominated 18th, 19th, early 20th century Christian hymns and Christian fiction? Do you need to be delivered from this? Do you need the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light so that your driving hope is the marriage of heaven and earth? That's the first thing Paul prays for the Ephesians. What a great thing to pray for your children, parents. What a great thing to pray for each other when you pray for each other. What a great thing to pray for the Christians you know. Give thanks to God for them and then ask God to deliver them from the thin barrenness that has captivated Christian visions of the future. What does he pray next? He also prays so that these young churches can be mature in their faith. Look what he prays in verse 19. He prays that God will help these young churches in and around Ephesus 
that they will know the outstanding greatness of God's power toward us who are loyal to him in faith, according to the working of his strength and power. This was the power at work in the king when God raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places above every rule and authority and power and lordship and above every name that is invoked both in the present age and also in the age to come. Think about it this way. Harrisonburg is one of the great bicycling meccas of the East Coast. You can Google Harrisonburg mountain biking, road biking online. And there's a lot of people in our city who absolutely love the availability of great places to, to ride their bikes. Lots of people in our church do this. For, for so many people in, in, in Harrisonburg, what biking is to them, power was to the Ephesians. The name of the game in Ephesus was power. Just like there's a subculture in Harrisonburg that the name of the game in life for them is biking. It, this is what Ephesus was all about. Think of the way that, what, think of what money is for New York. What celebrity is for Los Angeles. That's what power was for Ephesus. That was the commodity. Think Frank Underwood. Now, for Paul, the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen took place when God raised Jesus from the dead. This power of the creator God is on a completely different level to all the power you'll ever come across. The risen Jesus is now enthroned on the basis of this power. He is now the God, the Lord, the King, the ruler, the master of the whole cosmos. And at the center of Paul's prayer for the church in this area is his longing that these people who live in a place that is overwhelmed, that is totally committed to the notion of power, his burning longing is that they will come to realize that the greatest power, the power seen at Easter, now vested in Jesus, is available to them for their daily use. So Paul is asking God that the church in Ephesus will see, they will really see and really understand the immense power of God is available daily for the church. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that the greatest power in the universe is daily available to us? Are you someone who might say, well, you know, I don't seem to have much power as a Christian. Or I can't really see what God is doing in this world. Then we need to pray for you. We need to pray that... Like Paul prayed that the illumination of the gospel, which has already deeply affected you, will go deep, deep into you and transform your sight so that you can see the way things really are. 
being a Christian for a few years or a few decades doesn't mean you're automatically a mature Christian. There are 80-year-old immature people. And there, have been, there are Christians who have walked with God for decades. And their immaturity plays out in their impoverished view of hope. And in their impoverished view of the power that is daily available to them. Being a Christian doesn't make a person automatically mature. That's why Paul is praying this. He's praying that they will see the world with genuinely Christian hope, the hope of all things renewed, and recognize the power of God at work in this world and available to you. And this takes a fresh gift of wisdom, of coming to see things people don't normally see. And this comes through knowing Jesus and having the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light. So the power which raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same power that will transform the whole world and flood it with his glory. And the power that's going to do that to this world, the power it's going to take to fix our justice system. The power it's going to take to heal your family. The power it's going to take to end the wars between the nations. The power that God is really going to unleash and make all of that a reality. That power is available to you daily. Now this doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be like some magician, some conjurer performing spectacular tricks. What it means... Many of the things which God's power achieves in us, such as putting secret sins to death, such as becoming a person of real prayer, many of the things that God's power achieves in us are hidden from the world and very often even hidden from other Christians. Has your hope been set on the wrong goal? Is your hope for money? Is your hope for success? Is, is your hope really thinned out into cynicism? Do you feel powerless? Then pray. Do you know people who live like Eeyore? Always overwhelmed. No deep deep imaginative sense of hope and power, then pray. Pray that God will help you see this stuff. It is not about intelligence. It is about a fresh gift of God's wisdom. Now, the third and final thing Paul prays and asks of God for these young churches in and around Ephesus the third thing he prays is that they will be able to really understand is the massive, utterly comprehensive mission that he's given the church. Look at verse 22. God has put all things under his feet and has given him to the church as the head over all. The church is his body. It is the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Now Paul is making the audacious claim that Jesus Christ is the victorious, exalted King, leader, cosmic Lord. There's been a victory. 
In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has broken the vice-like grip that evil and darkness has on this world. The vice-like grip of evil and darkness that enslaves nature and culture and humanity. And Paul says right there at the beginning of verse 22, when he says that God has put all things under the feet of Christ, he's quoting Psalm 110, the psalm that we read earlier. Psalm 110, it is a fascinating passage of Scripture. It depicts the Most High God installing His King and then strengthening Him to go forth and bring the enemy under subjection. So Paul picks up this language and he uses it to demonstrate that that is precisely what God has done in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus was God's decisive, dramatic blow to evil. That was how God broke the grip of darkness and evil over this world. And then in verse 23, Paul draws out the intimate union of the victorious Jesus and the church. So what he does in verse 22 is he says, In the cross and the resurrection, Christ broke the powers of evil, and now he is the Lord of the cosmos. And then in verse 23, he immediately flows that into the church when he says, And God has given him, Jesus Christ, the cosmic Lord, to the church as the head over all. The church is his body. It is the fullness of the one who fills all. In all. So think about this. Christ is the head of everything. Right? That was Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ is the head of all things. But as head over all things, he's been given to the church. And only the church is his body. So two things here. First of all, the church is nothing in itself. It is only special because Christ is its head and his presence fills it. And second, because the church's head is head over all, and because the one who fills the church is filling all things, there is now continuity between the realm of salvation and the realm of creation, between the church and the world. And so the whole of created reality is the church's legitimate concern. If our head is the head of all things, and he fills us, and all things belong to him, all things matter to us. See, suddenly, when I said earlier, the resurrection of Jesus opens up creation, everything is now of interest to the church. Those of you who are Christians, 
not only are you radically changed by Christ, but being changed by Christ, it leads you not only on an inward journey, but on an outward journey. The world is God's good and lovely world, but it's been spoiled, spoiled horribly by human sin and by some vague, nebulous, hard to name, hard to put your finger on it, malevolent, malevolent force. But the point of salvation, the salvation God offers in Christ is the rescue of all things. And then God gives the head of all things to the church and this this cosmic Christ that's about everything fills up the church. And what does he do when he fills the church? He puts everything on the church's radar. The point of salvation is the rescue of all things. Not the abandonment of anything. So Paul is praying that these churches in and around Ephesus would see that their hope is the renewal of all things. And the power available to them is the kind of power that can handle everything. So that they will realize that their mission is everything. (laughs) We need a fresh gift of grace from God to wrap our minds around this. Because we're so accustomed to a domesticated church that sticks its nose only in the area of private morality but won't deal with politics and justice systems and poverty and social issues. So this, you see, do you see how this prayer Paul is praying? Do you see how it links up with itself and how it's a radical challenge to conservative evangelical Christians and to liberal Christians? For those of you who are on the conservative side of Christianity, do you need God's fresh gift of wisdom so that you can overcome the pervasive individualism of the evangelical world with its often exclusive focus on sin and individual salvation? Do you need wisdom so that you can see that even though those things are so vital, you've got to move beyond them, not leaving them behind, but you've got to open your vision up to more than them? Do you need the eyes of your inmost self to be open to God's light so that you can see he is the head of all? Do you know that the tree outside your window is as much a part of what God is doing in this world as your soul is? Do you know how your vocation as a homemaker links up with God's work in this world? Do you really deep down in your feelings feel that what you do on a daily basis has something to do with what God is doing in this world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's easy for the helping professions to see that. But what about all the other professions? Do you see it? Do you see how politics are critical to God's work on this earth? And that I need to talk about politics as much as I talk about evangelism? Do you know that? Do you know that it is a lie of our enemy to separate politics and the church? Our head is the head of all things. So all things matter to him. 
But it's not just the conservatives among us who are challenged. It's also the progressive Christians who are challenged. There's not a single paragraph in the book of in the letter of Ephesians which he does which Paul doesn't root in the old-fashioned view of Jesus Christ. The liberal side of Christianity needs to beware of eviscerating the central tenets of the Christian faith in an attempt to gain acceptance in an increasingly secular society. Do you see how this is challenging all of the red and blue spectrum? And for all of us here at the Church of the Incarnation, if Christ is the head over all things and the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all things, then this place, this place where we live, this place where our church is located, it matters. It is not just a spot on the map where we accidentally gather to worship. If Christ is the head of all things and the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all things, then our church is one of God's churches for this particular place on the map. So when Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, we must recognize that Paul always, in every single one of his letters, he always starts the same way. By insisting that you live in two places and they matter. You live in Christ and in the place where your house is. And those two things can't be separated from each other. Paul locates the church in Christ and in Ephesus. And these two realities are intimately wedded with one another. You can't get Jesus right without turning your attention to your place. And you cannot see your place right without the light of Christ. They're both together. We encounter Christ primarily in our local congregations as we gather around him Sunday after Sunday to hear his address and to eat and drink of his life. But the Christ we encounter is the one who stands with his face toward his world. He bears in his body the wound of this world. And he sends us out from this table with the power of his spirit to bring hope and healing to this particular place in his world. Taking Christ seriously requires us to take his world seriously. And to take this good but broken world seriously, we cannot drift off into vague generalities and abstractions. That's like somebody loving you vaguely or caring about you in theory or trying to help you in generalities. We must attend to this city. And we're downtown. We must attend to downtown. To exist for the glory of God and the good of the community, we have to slow down and give restful attentiveness to this place because it requires slow, restful attentiveness to begin to see through the vague generalities to the particular ways in which our city is flourishing 
and the particular ways in which our city is not flourishing and then get involved. What are the major challenges facing our city? Do you know? If you can't name them, then slow down and get involved. We, as a church, must become much, much more politically and socially involved in our cities because cities are not gatherings of individuals. They are groupings of systems, of institutions. God has placed all things under the feet of Christ. And he's given Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A church that journeys deeply into Christ will simultaneously journey deeply out into the particular place in which it's located because the church does not exist for itself, but for God. And God exists for the life of the world. And what a great prayer to pray for the young churches in and around Ephesus that they would have a fresh gift of wisdom so that they could see the real hope which is Harrisonburg made new and renewed and healed. And they could see that the power that's going to make that happen isn't just in the future, it's available now. So that we can go with that into this utterly comprehensive mission We need to pray this for our church. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, would you do this for us? Father, would you please give us a fresh gift of wisdom so that we, the church of the incarnation, that each one of us and we as an institution can have genuine Christian hope can really know the power that's available to us and can join you in every nook and cranny of this community where you are calling us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.